Amen. Well, please do have a seat and open up your Bibles. Back to Paul's letter to the Galatians and the last part of chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. That's page 975 in the Black Visitors' Bibles, if you've got one of those. Galatians chapter 6 from verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hands. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Well, at last, it's exam time. I'm sure some of you remember how that felt. It was only a few weeks ago, wasn't it? But these are not your school leaving exams. They're not your university finals, no. This is the last exam you will ever sit. Nervously, you turn over the paper. There's just one question facing you on the reverse side of that sheet. What is your only comfort, both in life and in death? So how will you answer? All around the room already, people are scribbling frantically, filling up their pages with words. They're the Bible experts, your Galatian teachers. Well, I was a terrible sinner, one of them writes. But then I came to know the Lord. He forgave me. And slowly but surely, I got my life in order. I made some difficult choices. I gave up some unhealthy habits. I made it a principle to stick with the mature Christians, the ones who'd helped me towards holiness. And eventually I made the decisive step to say there is no going back. For me, that meant circumcision. And I really have found that although none of us, of course, are perfect, my religions really helped me grow closer to the Lord. You chew on your pen, wondering what you're going to write. And then across the room, you spy one other teacher, the old apostle Paul, he picks up his pencil and in large capital letters writes just four words, the cross of Christ. In life, his cross is my only benchmark. In death, his cross is my only boast. There's nothing else. He puts a full stop. He stands up. And he leaves the exam hall. And now the room is hushed, isn't it? There's no sound but the tick, tick, tick of the clock. Time 
trickling away, and now you have to answer the question. That is where this letter leaves the Galatians. Paul is crystallizing the differences that he's been exposing for us right the way through, the choice between two different ministries and two very different answers to the Christian life. And now it's time for them to face the decision. So as Paul wraps up, he gets very explicit. Look at them, he says, and then look at me and ask yourself, which of those teachers is really embracing the cross of the Lord Jesus? You want an escape from this present evil age. That's where the book began in chapter 1, verse 4. You want an answer to that discouraging grip that this world still has on your hearts. Well, look closely, says Paul, because one of these ministries is truly living for the age to come, and the other, truth be told, is still seduced by the ways of this age. One of these ministries looks the part, but at its heart, it's a ministry of self-love, self-promotion, a worldly ministry. Two ministries then, and at their heart, every single ministry is one of these two. Mine, yours, our ministry together, caring for each other as a church the ministry of those people we read and watch and listen to, the ministry of the man every one of you will have the responsibility of voting to call next to shepherd this flock. Every ministry is one of these two. So this is not just a little narrow warning about pastors. At its heart, every one of our lives is either a ministry of self-love or a ministry of self-giving. Either I embrace myself and so use Christ's people, or I embrace Christ's cross and so give myself for his people. Paul is going to lay it out very simply, verse 11, in big, bold letters. First, he'll show his readers the truth about their legalistic teachers, and then he's going to subject himself to the same spotlight, and he'll expose two things each time a motive and a mark. What really motivates and drives each ministry? And what is the true telltale mark of its teachers? So firstly then, in verses 11 to 13, a ministry of self-love. And I think to understand just how spectacularly offensive verse 12 is, we need to remember who Paul is talking about here. This is a church we've seen full of young, insecure converts who looked up in awe at the very people Paul's accusing. He's talking about the godly ones, the ones who look devout, the spiritual Jewish Christian leaders, the ones who seem to be doing real battle with sin, who sound so much more intimate with God. And yet, what does Paul call them in verse 12? Flesh people. Their great and abiding motive is really to look out for their flesh, to look out for number one, to make a good showing in the flesh and impress others. It looks like they care deeply about holiness, about God's law, about circumcision and perfecting, restraining the sinful nature, but 
The truth is, says Paul, it's you lot that they're interested in. And the sinful nature is actually the very thing that's driving them. Religion really is about how we look and what we can get now in this age. And it turns out that that is the real divide in this letter. It's not really a letter about two ways of salvation. It's a choice between two ages. The question right from verse 1 has been, which age do you belong to decisively, fully, completely, once and for all? Is your ultimate hope of godliness something now and fleshly and man-made? Or is it something then and spirit-wrought and eternal? Is your answer to sin and discouragement a this-world answer, some human technique? Or is it simply to keep on trusting Jesus with your eyes on his promise? Well, now we see what drives the troublemakers. Verse 13, it's boasting in the Galatians' flesh, in the now stuff, the this age stuff. They want a church that looks great on the outside, lots of converts, lots of baptisms, even better, lots of circumcisions. Won't the Jewish neighbors be impressed with our ministry? Lots of church plants to boast in, lots of signatures and all the right petitions. Lots of people in awe at the eloquent Bible teachers and their reputation for being brave with the gospel. Lots of name-dropping and self-promotion on all the right blogs and at the right conferences. And ultimately, of course, they're driven by the one thing our flesh craves most of all, and that is to protect itself. Isn't that what verse 12 says? They want to force you to be circumcised and make a good religious showing. And the only reason they do that is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Do you see what really matters to these influential Christians? Their hope is in their performance now. They brag in their success now. And their ultimate, ultimate fear is persecution and hardship now. Once upon a time, mid Nappy change, one of our supposedly innocent toddlers launched a precision strike on my right eye. For the sake of anonymity, we'll call her Phoebe Evelyn. It was one of those moves that she must have calculated perfectly to make it as exquisitely painful as possible, poke him with finger, tear his cornea, and then deploy cute little laughs. And now the worst thing about being a vet was that in my bag of tricks, there was a little bottle of local anesthetic eye drops, and I soon discovered that just one little drop would make all the pain go away. <laughs> the only problem is it lasted about 20 minutes, and when an eye specialist in church found out what I'd been doing, she went absolutely bananas, because every little drop you see softens the cornea and sets the healing back to square one. But I wonder if you can imagine how hard it was to resist when you're lying there for days, unable to even open your eye, and all it took was one little drop. Well, what must it have felt like to hold onto the cross with all of its social implications in a religious world? All you had to do was add a little drop of something else, and all the pain would vanish. Just a drop of Jewish tradition, and you don't ruffle any feathers, 
just sit the new converts at a different table until they fit in. Jesus, plus a drop of something more. You just need to join our group, stick with our kind of worship. That's how you'll really start to grow. You see, the minute someone's answer to discouragement shifts from keep on trusting Jesus to join our little group and have what we've got, then you're dealing with Galatian teaching. And the more that solution divides the church and points you to human beings with all the answers, the more Galatian it looks. The truth is, it's often not really God whose opinion most matters to us, because once again, look what verse 13 shows us. They don't actually give a stuff about what God's law was really all about. Paul told us last time, didn't he? He told us that it has always been a law of love. You know the ones who love God and his law because you see them here Sunday by Sunday looking after you. And friends, if you can see that here in church, that ought to give you real confidence that you are sitting in just the right place this morning alongside Jesus' people. But some of these Galatians were treating Christianity like a thing to parade in front of others. The law was just a technique to set yourself apart as a spiritual person. So the real issue in Galatia, it wasn't circumcision. If it was, we could probably consign this safely to history. But the real issue was plain old sinful people. And Jewish law was just one tool that some of them used to impress and manipulate the church. Back in chapter 4, remember, Paul made one very revealing comment about the real motive. They make much of you, those teachers, he said, chapter 4, verse 17. They make much of you. They flatter you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out in order that you make much of them. I think it's the motive behind almost every pastoral abuse scandal that has plagued the church over the last few years and everyone coming at us right around the corner. You see what Paul's showing us through these teachers? He's painting a living portrait of how a real church is ruined by all those self-centered works of the flesh that we saw last time. At its roots, when we use religion like that. It isn't really about loving God or even trying to impress him. It's about me loving me. And other people only really matter as a way to get what we want for ourselves. We want to look better, earn their praise, have our ministry validated. At the very least, we don't want others in church to think too badly of us. That's enough to make me pretend and put on a show. Thankfully, I wrote this sermon a long time before I was standing here today with a very different church and a different occasion in mind. Otherwise, maybe I'd have been tempted to dodge the application. <laughs> but as someone who has stood up front speaking to you all for seven years, let me give you a little insight into the danger of becoming a Bible teacher. Men who pastor God's church are just as human as you are. We're marked by all the same insecurities, all the same needs to validate ourselves. And what better way to feed a man's insecurities than by giving him a platform to gather up lots of his own little disciples? That's what these 
teachers wanted, isn't it? It's what so many in Christian ministry seem to need, whether that's paid ministry like mine or just your ordinary serving in church. We need our ministry, our serving to boast in. We need people in church looking to us to make us feel secure, to give us what only Jesus was ever meant to give. The religious man feels better about himself because of all the vulnerable, struggling Christians who need him. So up in verse 4, they were boasting by looking down on each other, because how soothing it feels to have all sorts of people needing you whose lives seem even more of a mess than your own. And then when they start to grow and show all of his own external, superficial signs of spiritual growth, the religious man can boast in them all over again in his impressive discipleship. That was the ugly truth about these Galatian legalists. Theirs was a ministry driven by their own insecurity and guilt and selfish needs. And often, I think, that is what lies behind some of our most energetic evangelical church building. So if that is the motive, what's the mark? How does Paul want us to recognize people whose influence isn't helpful? Well, the big tell is exactly what they're boasting in, isn't it? It's the external signs that they use to validate their ministry. These ones could have pointed you to a literal, superficial mark in the flesh. They would have pointed you to their circumcision rates, but it could just as well be something else. They could point you to the numbers they've collected up into their home group, or baptized, or had joined the church. They could point you to all the busy church programs they're involved with. They could point to all the gospel conversations they've had. They could talk about the ways they've taken on the culture like no one else is doing. And there's nothing at all that our proud rival tribes in Scottish evangelicalism like pointing to more than all the men we've trained for ministry and sent out to plant they're all wonderful things, aren't they? They're good things. But when it's that a person is drawing attention to, it may well be that it's themselves they're really embracing and not the Lord Jesus. Well, what a contrast to Paul. Far be it from me, he says, to boast in the flesh, in the now stuff, or in anything but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because none of that counts for anything, verse 15. Only his new creation at work in us now. And that is what real freedom has looked like in this letter, isn't it? To be free is to have died with Jesus, to have crucified your pride and your boasting and your sense that there is anything special about you that earns God's favor. It's to be free from that need for respect, that crushing need for approval and praise. And that leads to a very, very different sort of ministry, one that embraces Jesus and his ways of doing things, which is what we find in verses 14 to 18, a ministry of self-giving. Either I embrace myself and so use Christ's church, or I embrace Christ's cross and give myself 
for his church. And isn't it striking that the one thing the legalists are most ashamed of is the one thing that Paul will glory in, the cross of his Savior. So here is Paul's great motivation, and wouldn't it be wonderful to say the same thing? It is to follow Jesus and to exalt only Jesus. His great motivation is to lift Jesus high. In death, the cross will be Paul's only pride, his only boast before a holy judge. And in life, the cross will be his only pattern, one of self-giving and sacrifice. And just think how that showed in the way that Paul ministered. The other guys would do whatever it took to avoid discomfort, to avoid the scandal the gospel was to people's traditions. And yet Paul paid an astonishing price, didn't he? So that these Galatians could hear the truth. Persecuted at every step, because chapter 5, verse 11, he refused to compromise the message. Now, why would a man do all of that for them? Surely it's because his hope lay in something far deeper than comfort in this age. It was a new creation he cared about, verse 15. And that new age can only begin here and now when Jesus' spirit does something inside a human heart, just as he has in Paul's heart. And so that is Paul's one boast, that he is nothing but what Christ has made him, a new being, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Notice though, verse 14, that cross has done something very real in Paul's life. Through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Right through the letter, Paul's been laying out a real answer to this evil age, to the power of this world over our souls and over our hearts. And at last, there we have it. It's not to try harder or adopt new rules. No, that doesn't nearly go far enough. The answer is to die to this age. And Paul is a dead man walking. If you're a Christian, then your life is so wrapped up in the cross of your Savior that when Jesus died, you died. And so Paul can say he is finally free, not from the struggle of this age, but he's already died the death this world is facing. He's free from the fates of this age. Another man has died his death and faced his hell. And he's free from the grip of this age on his heart. All of this world with its values and its pride and its boasting is dead to him. He has pounded the streets of the Roman Empire for the sheer joy of telling people that they can be forgiven in Christ. But he didn't do that needing anyone to notice or anyone to applaud. He's free to think less of himself and more of Jesus. And what a powerful, powerful thing that kind of freedom must be in our age. If you belong to Jesus, then it is yours to enjoy. Because what counts to you is verse 15, the new world opened up for you through the cross. 
born in your heart already. That's why Jesus' people, the Israel of God, they're free to walk by his rule, not self-love, which we show in all these superficial outward signs, but a love for the Lord who gave himself to seek and to save the lost. The cross says that my brothers and sisters are more valuable than my own status, my sense of importance. The cross says that the good of the church is more important than the reputation I get for service or for godliness or growth. The cross says that this world just does not have as much to offer me as it pretends. So although people might sneer and look down on me, their thinking well of me is less important than my honesty about Jesus. Because their good opinion of me or their bad opinion of me, it will only last as long as this age does. And I belong to the next. At their heart, a religious person is someone still trying to hang on by the claws to their own status. Someone who's still grieving for this life with all its pride, all its pretending, who won't quite put all their eggs in Jesus' basket. But there is a death we have to embrace in coming to Christ. And in the end, it was easier for these Galatian teachers to play the part and keep their pride than to fully embrace Jesus' cross. For Paul, though, that cross was a thing which drove and motivated him above everything else. So what then about the, the mark of a Christian like Paul? How do you spot one of them? Well, I think verse 17 is just the most extraordinary end to a letter I've ever seen, isn't it? Of all the parting words you could possibly imagine, Paul chooses this. Here is my final proof, he says, of my authority. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Those beatings and lashings he took so that others could find forgiveness. There's my proof. Surely it is only the Spirit of Christ truly living inside someone that can do that. Only Jesus living inside us would make us actually volunteer with a big, genuine smile on our face to give ourselves in love for other people, to give up on all that we cherish, our own selfishness and pride for something we love far, far more. Human beings made in the image of the God who saved us. And so those scars on Paul's body, they cried out louder than words that he belonged wholly and truly to a crucified king. And every Christian has a scar hiding somewhere if they've walked with him long enough. A preacher once put a, a picture in my mind I've never really been able to forget. He painted an image of what Paul's back must have looked like. A mess of thick, white, tangled cords of scar tissue, like a bowl of spaghetti. So please don't miss what a shocking thing he's saying here. Paul chose his final words very carefully. Isn't this 
the most staggering mic drop moment in the New Testament. If you want a mark in the flesh, he's saying, a sign that I'm a proper, fully circumcised Israelite, I'll give you a mark. But it's not the scar you're looking for. It's nothing as superficial, external as that. You don't see that I'm for real by pulling down my trousers. You pull the shirt off my back. That's where grace has left its mark on me. When you truly love someone, you will pay almost anything for them, won't you? You'll do it in a heartbeat. So come and see the cost that only something as powerful as the love of Christ would ever rejoice to pay. It's a mark that dead, self-serving religion could never give you, but the gospel of a self-giving, crucified Christ, that really can change a man. So it's exam time. The last exam you'll ever sit, and the clock is ticking. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Paul writes his answer in big, clear letters. Embrace the cross. Edinburgh North Church, beloved, beloved Edinburgh North Church, don't ever, ever stop lifting high the crucified Savior. Don't ever rejoice in anything less because his cross is the only pattern to follow in this life And it is the only pride worth boasting of in death. So Paul places his full stop and he leaves them to decide. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the cross of your son where our new creation was forged in love and purchased through pain and sacrifice. Help us, we pray, to gladly think less of ourselves, that we may gain Christ and be found in him. An answer with Paul that we will never have any other boast, but that another man has died for us, and we now live for him. For we ask it all through the love and merit of Jesus Christ, our gracious Lord. Amen.